0: West Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. Today is our start of Lent. And if you're familiar with the Lenten season, it's a time of preparation and a time of reflection on who Jesus is and what he did for us. And so we're beginning to end our series that we were on most of last year called Real Jesus, where we've been trying to look at in the eyewitness accounts who Jesus really is, because all of us have our idea of who Jesus is. We all have opinions of who he is. The media around us shares all sorts of opinions. You've probably heard opinions in church. And so we've tried to take the time to look very deeply into the eyewitness account, particularly through Mark, but drawing on the other ones of who Jesus really is. And we've seen through that time period how Jesus was amazingly patient with people who uh, the church oftentimes rejects as sinners. Jesus pursued them with kindness and went after the harassed and helpless and those who are downtrodden with a tenacity and a pursuit of love that really, when we look, look at it honestly, rocks our world. He also spent a lot of time confronting religion as his primary focus and his critics. And he was very focused and tenacious about confronting them and trying to get them out of the idea of of religion into relationship. And we've seen Jesus walk through this whole time period with this very clear, resolute sense of purpose that he's headed somewhere. And he's began to predict that to his disciples as we've seen in the past few uh, chapters that we finished up before the Christmas season. We saw him predicting over and over again that his path was to die and rise again and they did not understand that. Today we begin to jump into some texts and over the next few weeks of Lent we jump into the texts that actually show that climax beginning to unfold and we're going to look at the last few hours of Jesus before the crucifixion all the way through the resurrection in the next few weeks before Easter. Now if you're here and you're unconvinced about all this stuff. You're really not sure that this is true history, that this is really who Jesus is. That's okay. I understand that. I can I can understand that. This is 2,000 years removed, and while while we can provide a good circumstantial case of evidence from the Bible, from eyewitness accounts, from historical documents that this stuff most likely happened, I can understand that it's not something easy to believe. So what I want to invite you to do, if you are unconvinced through this process, I'd, I want to invite you to come back through this through these next few weeks and just not give up on your opinions that, questioning whether this is true or not, but just set them aside enough to be able to listen with a heart and a mind that allows yourself to say, what if this is true? What does that mean to me? And more than that, honestly, the only way I think that any of us can become convinced that this stuff is true because a circumstantial case is not strong enough to convince any of us is to pray a prayer on a regular basis, maybe daily, asking for an experience of God. Because if Jesus is really real, if He's alive, if He did rise from the dead, then He can prove to you by you experiencing Him, by you having an encounter with Him that this is all indeed truth. It's all indeed history. So I want to invite you to just pray that prayer and see what happens. Today we jump into the text uh, very quickly and we see this section of Scripture where faith that is real, that is compelling, that is alive is contrasted with faith that is contrived. And leads us so often to disappointment and even to betraying our own beliefs and our own values. One of the key assumptions for today really is this simple simple statement. None of us want to live divided from our beliefs and our values. We all we all want to live them with integrity and with we don't want to have a disingenuous life. Because we all know that when we live our values and when we live according to our beliefs, our life is the most satisfying. And when we don't live according to those beliefs, maybe maybe you've experienced this. Maybe some of you have experienced the loss of a lifelong happy marriage that you had dreamed of, that you believed was right and true. Maybe others of you have just experienced infidelity or you, you've experienced some other types of betrayal. Many, maybe some of you have been those betrayers. Maybe it's just not been infidelity, but maybe it's been a betrayal of a friendship. Maybe it's been hiding something that when it came out, it really hurt somebody else. And the reality that we all know that I think everyone in here really clearly understands is when we do those things, when we're the ones who we are, the betrayer, it hurts. In fact, I think many of you from those experiences when you have lost it and done things that are contrary to belief, when you've done something that is embarrassing, when you've hurt somebody else, I think many of you would probably agree that the pain of that internally for you is worse than if somebody else were to hurt you. You spend more time in your mind angry at yourself and regretting those things than what somebody else did to you. It's painful for us to betray our beliefs. You probably even got to the point at some point in your life where you said, I, I don't even know if I, I'm i capable of being a good enough husband or a good enough friend or good enough sibling. I'm not capable of even loving good enough and wondering whether you're broken beyond hope. Today's text leads us into seeing our own human struggle with faithfulness and betrayal. And it's, it isolates for us in this stark relief for us, this heart and this path to faithfulness in life. Verses 1-10, through 10, we get a glimpse of the contrast first. We see two, two different characters in this, in this passage. We see one character, uh, both of them are a part of Jesus' inner circle. They're both, they both have privileged access to Him. One of them is his disciple, Judas, who is one of his twelve, one of the twelve inner circle. The other one is this this lady who's unnamed in this text, but if we look in the eyewitness account of, of John, it tells us that this lady in our text today was Mary, not Mary Magdalene, it was Mary of Bethany, Mary the sister of Martha, Mary the sister of Lazarus. And as we look at her character throughout the Bible, we see Mary being this person who has one-on-one time with Jesus, who Jesus, when He comes to town, when He's going to Jerusalem, because Bethany's right outside of Jerusalem, He stays at their house and lives with them and eats with them. Thank you very much. And, uh, and so she's got this beautiful, amazing relationship with Him. And in, as our passage picks up today, the media is probably going to laugh at me over that one, Right? <clears throat> isn't it amazing how petty it can be sometimes Uh, Jesus is at this uh, house of Simon the leper a man that he had healed in the town of Bethany Mary's hometown and Mary's there with him and we see this extravagant many would say wasteful act occur where Mary comes into the into the place where Jesus and the Twelve are reclining at table celebrating this most holy feast of the whole year, the Passover meal. It's just this great feast of celebration and solemn remembrance of God's deliverance and God's goodness. And she interrupts and she comes in and she pours out this vial of perfume that the text tells us is worth a year's wages. All in one shot. Can you imagine somebody coming in here and pouring out $5,200,000 in five seconds, just gone like that? And to really understand the impact of this, think a little bit further. Think in your own life about how long it takes you to save one year's worth of your wages. This is a big deal. This is a huge deal. And it's gone like that. Can you imagine being here today and somebody's deciding, uh, without ever inviting the public, without ever making a big deal out of it, they're just going sp- to spend $100,000 on this great light show and pyrotechnic, sh- pyrotechnic show uh, on the stage here, and you walk in and you see that, what's going to be your response? First of all, you're probably going to go, yeah, that was awesome, because it was awesome, right? I mean, $100,000 blown in five seconds on this stage would probably make everybody go, wow, Right? But most of us would probably walk away going, what a waste. Couldn't that money be spent better? And that's what Judas does. Judas sees this interaction and he walks away angry. He walks away frustrated, saying it could have been spent on the poor. Why this great big waste? And he does one of the most heartbreaking things of all of history. For anyone to do. But especially in this instance. He immediately leaves and he goes and betrays Jesus to these enemies for 30 pieces of silver. You see, here is the contrast in this text. That's something so important that we need to understand. If we want relationship with God that is compelling and extravagant. Mary's act it describes as this ex- extravagantly beautiful thing done because of the relationship with Jesus. It's this worship of the one she knew so well and loved so deeply. And, and we can even take it the implication from the passage that it was an act led by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. And she did it for a purpose. That purpose was this beautiful act the text describes to prepare Jesus for burial. Giving us this beautiful symbol of the great cost and the beautiful result that would come because of Jesus' death. By contrast, Judas is caught in this trap of, let's just call it what it is, cost-benefit analysis That that is something that we all live in so much that the cost-benefit is the be-all end-all of life. Judas is thinking, how can this be wise? He could have spent this money and given it to the poor. This is so illogical, so wasteful, and yet it leads him not to freedom, but it leads him to this destructive End. Selling out his beliefs for 30 pieces of silver. John Lynn summarizes what's going on in this passage very succinctly. He says this, he says, Mary gives up all she is worth to Jesus, while Judas is calculating what Jesus is worth to him. Another way to say it in this is this, in life today there are two kinds of approaches to faith. Those who approach faith as an act of worship, following Jesus on mission, giving their all, and those who approach church and faith and life like consumers. What will I get out of this? Living as consumers versus followers who worship is a really dangerous slope to be on, the text teaches us. It leads us to this self-centered death rather than to having this compelling faith that motivates us to freedom and to beautiful response. You see, all of us long for beauty, right? In one sense of the word. We all long for the freedom to be who we really are, to be fully accepted, to be fully loved, to have this great freedom to just purely enjoy life, to live life empowered by God. And we see this freedom in Mary when she makes this extravagant act. And even when we don't, even when we struggle with the cost of it, we see this act as, be- as beautiful and something that is really quite attractive. In Judas, though, we see this mind that constricts him. That it's, He's constantly worried. He's constantly worried about, am I good enough? Am I going to be successful enough? What's the right thing to do all the time? And it leaves him living a life that's uptight, asking the question all the time, what's right, what's best, am I going to, am I going to measure up? And it leaves him in this place where he's, he's prone to judgment, prone to snap judgments. the cynical place in life, looking for what is not right, because he's so concerned about being right and has to feel right and think that everything he thinks is right and pure. But the approach that he takes to Jesus is really deceptively serving his own need to save himself. He's still caught in the steel jaws of religion. He's the one still defining what is best and what is right and true rather than living in the freedom of relationship with God. And the contrast between Mary and Judas is clear. One loves and follows Jesus for who he is. And one admires and follows Jesus for what he can get out of the relationship. The scene in the text moves on. We've seen the contrast. Now Jesus brings us into this passage and Mark brings us into the passage where he's talking about some similarity in life. And, it, and really the focal point of this whole passage is a really interesting, ambiguous statement that Jesus makes in verse 18, it's almost it's such an ambiguous statement. We, look, we read it and we think it's a trap. But it's not a trap that Jesus is setting. It's a trap that Jesus is exposing. The 12 disciples sitting around enjoying their feast, laying, reclining at the table, having a good time talking. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, Jesus asks this question. He says, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Can you just picture it? Can you picture all the air leaving the room? Can you picture these guys grabbing their piece of bread or their piece of fish and stopping mid-bite as the, as the blood just rushes out of their heads? And they're going, what? Somebody is going to betray Him? Now, why did Jesus do that? Why didn't He just call him out? I mean, he's he's in a room where everybody is friendly to him. It's not like the guy can do any harm to him. Why, would, If I was him, I would just call him out and say, Judas, you betrayer, you scum, what are you doing? But Jesus doesn't do that. And we look at the next verse and we begin to see the similarity pop out because one by one it says, each of the disciples around the table went around and said, Surely not I. They ask, they respond as a question. It's not, it's not exactly a clear response, is it? It's not, they're not exactly each one denying that. And the point that Jesus is actually bringing up to us is that even though when we look at the contrast of Judas and Mary and we see the treacherous, just awfulness of Judas and we see the beauty of Mary, that the reality is that the betrayal that Judas is experiencing and that he's going through is something similar that we all deal with. It's something similar in all of our own hearts that sin and betrayal is deeply and utterly a part of all of us. It becomes clear that this is what Jesus is doing in verse 27 when He actually says, You all will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Aren't we all tempted to approach life, including our faith, from a consumer mindset like Judas? Don't we tend to make a lot of our faith decisions, our, our choice of a church, what we do for a living, what, God, what, what we think, think uh, God wants us to do whether, uh, based upon whether it makes us feel better about ourselves or meets our needs? You know, I wish it wasn't true, but even in the story I shared with you from my own life last week, the times when I was struggling with wondering why is this plan not going the way God wants it to? Why is it not going where, where it should? When I was arguing with God or distant with God, it was really all about my needs to have my path be met and the needs be met the way I wanted them to. I was living life as a consumer, not a worshiper. Don't we all fall trapped to that? And doesn't, isn't that really the key in a lot of times to the betrayal of our relationships, either with God or with other people. You see that Judas part of, a, of, our, of our consumer selfish heart comes out as we begin to look at options to make what's not happening the way we want it to happen, happen. To take over control of our life. To, uh, you know, if you've left several churches in the past and left some of them for, because of frustration, more than likely at some point you said, the church isn't meeting my needs. the, the ultimate consumer statement ultimate consumer mentality isn't it true if we look at our lives and some of the aspects of our faith one of the reasons a lot of us don't tithe is because the cost-benefit ratio isn't high enough for us it feels good to give a little especially when we give it to feel good things around us to the poor and other things like that that make us feel good but tithe is a sacrifice and when we look at that the cost-benefit ratio doesn't feel good God's wanting all of us to be Marys who follow because of this abandoned worship and love of the relationship with Him. To be on mission wherever He places us to make a difference. Just for the joy and the beauty of following God Himself. You know, when we live life through a consumer mindset, the quality of our faith feels low whenever we don't feel like we're getting fed. We start to get on, feel like we're living life on empty when we don't get our needs met, and we tend to blame God, we tend to blame the church, maybe blame a small group or a small group, something else, but we see, when we see Judas' betrayal, as deplorable and awful as it is, the same thing is in all of us. This depth of sin, this self-centeredness, this thing that when it's not met, it can easily trigger us to betray our ideals and our beliefs, even our Savior. We all value things on that basis, don't we? We all measure the cost-benefit. I will follow and believe the gospel if it makes my life easier. I'll believe the gospel if it makes my kids happy, if I get to marry the person I want to. We use God to get benefit. And isn't this the very essence of sin in our relationships, this consumer mentality? If my marriage is close enough to what I want it to be, and I get enough benefit out of it, and not to outweigh the negative, then I will stay in that relationship. If I get enough benefit out of my friendships, if they give back enough to me that it feels like a mutual relationship, then I will stay faithful to those friendships. And it drives our relationships. It even drives our own faith and the way we decide to try to be holy to deal with sin in our lives. We read all these books and these how-to books and we try to do the right things. We get involved in small groups. We do accountability groups. We, we strive to live free of our sin. We learn the formulas that the Bible teaches and that the preachers say, the three things that we need to have success, the three things we need to have a happier marriage that God teaches us or to be successful in business. We, we learn and we're driven to know the principles and the rules of the Bible. And the consumer cost-benefit ratio in that for us is this. But that by doing those behaviors, we feel better about ourselves. And therefore, we believe God likes us and can bless us. But when we don't do those things, we don't think God likes us or is willing to work through us or bless us. Because the cost-benefit ratio not only is the things that make us pleased, but, but it has another side to it. If the cost isn't high enough on our part, then we're not worthy of of the benefit that it brings and our faith becomes about morals and rules rather than relationship and ultimately the consumer mindset leaves us living life like a dry like a dry teapot over a hot flame or a a car who battery that can't hold a charge anymore and Paul even points this aspect of that cost-benefit ratio out in, in, in Colossians 2.23 where we, if we don't pay enough, then we don't deserve it. And he says in Colossians 2.23, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Our performance, paying enough, being good enough about following the rules does nothing, Paul is saying, to restrain sin or to help us become free of those things in our life. Just like Judas's life, this consumer mentality eventually destroys your life. And what Jesus is doing here in Mark's recording is really how not to be like Judas, but to be like Mary. And the first step to that is just simply this, realizing and owning the depth of sin that's within us, coming to terms with that. G.K. Chesterton, a famous Christian writer from the 20th century, was asked by the London Times one time to answer the question, in a form of an essay, what is wrong with the world? They were going to publish a series of essays from different great thinkers, and Chesterton responded with a profound essay that simply read this. Dear sirs, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. I am what's wrong with the world. Change starts with making peace with the fact that we have such depth of sin, such depth of consumer mindset in our lives that we cannot be free of, that we all have this trigger in us that can make each one of us a Judas and betray our beliefs or betray those we love. And repenting of and turning away from that and finding the peace that only Jesus and His forgiveness can give us. And trading our consumer mindset for one of worshipful following. That I will worship whether that road leads to ease and blessing or whether that road leads to death. In Mary's case, whether that, whether that anointing with perfume is a, an anointing of celebration or whether it's an anointing of, for burial, it makes no difference. Either way, I will give my all and I'll be all in. But what else can we do to overcome the natural bent to live as consumers, to stop living out of a cost-benefit analysis of the world and instead become extravagant worshipers following God? The answer in one sense is we can't do anything. But this passage does give us some more indications in how we can connect to the power of God and in the way that He can bring change to our lives. And that too resides in this very same ambiguous statement that Jesus makes in verse 18. This is, verse 18 clearly points to this issue that we all have within us this sense of betrayal. Betrayal. And yet, if you stand back and think about it, it is also this amazing, amazing act of love by Jesus. Think about it again. Jesus knows who his betrayer is. And Jesus doesn't say nothing. He loves him more than that. He loves him enough to speak the truth of what's going on. He basically is saying in this ambiguous statement, I can see you, right? He's basically saying that. And later on in verse 23, he actually calls him out even more and says, Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus, Jesus is profoundly clear. Profoundly honest. But Jesus doesn't unmask him. He knows it's Judas. But he doesn't unmask him. He doesn't humiliate him. He is not intent on trying to trample on him. Don Carson, a contemporary theologian in our day, says this, this, is, says this about it. He says, this is Jesus' final act of courtesy and love to Judas. Jesus is trying to be kind, trying to offer this opportunity for him to own the betrayal in his heart and repent of it. He doesn't want to shatter him. He doesn't want to drive him away. He's showing this amazing patience because Jesus wants, him, wants to melt his heart wants to melt the hardness with His kindness. And can you imagine, as the disciples later look back on this instance, I mean, they obviously look back on it. It's recorded in the eyewitness accounts. As they look back on it, can you imagine how powerful this interaction must have been in their lives? Because they too betrayed Jesus. They too betrayed their belief and all the values, the things that they believed in. And what does that say to all of us? simply says this, it doesn't matter how awful, how horrible, how crude, how demeaning, how sinister anything you have ever done in your life, Jesus is still coming to you like he came to Judas with a sense of kindness, with a sense of invitation, with a sense of opportunity. He is pursuing you with truth in a kind, loving way. And it's in this life-changing kindness when we really begin to understand that that draws us out of our sinful nature as consumers into the freedom and beauty of worship. We can't change ourselves. It's only in fully grasping and fully receiving the kindness of God and abandoning ourselves into this beauty to worship the One who is so beyond what we can think of in terms of His pursuit of love with us, towards us. See, both Judas and Mary had opportunities to respond to Jesus and leave the consumer mindset and become a worshiper. Just a short while before this, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Mary's brother. And Mary becomes enraptured with Jesus in this relationship. She's already enraptured before that, but, but it becomes even deeper. And she just, she's just bound up in the beauty of the relationship. But Judas, seeing the same thing, that Mary saw, and even seeing more because he'd walked with him for three and a half years everywhere he went. He still is more about self justification, more concerned about taking up offense when things aren't done according to the best ways he thinks they should be done, about having his needs met, and he can only be happy when his needs are met. We so easily believe that in the consumer mindset that we can only be happy when our needs are met. All of Mary's needs are not necessarily met, but she's abandoningly happy and pursuing God in love. One runs to Jesus without demand and Jesus heals. Another sees Jesus healing many. But it's never enough when our own needs are not met things will quickly tip in ourselves so that we fall into judgment and we betray our belief. This consumer mindset is such a blinding force in all of our lives that prevents us from seeing God's goodness and beauty all around us every day. When you understand that you, as the one who with betrayal and sin and weakness in your heart, are so compassionately pursued like Jesus does to Judas here, like Jesus does by going to the cross for all of us, only then can you lay down your rights to have your needs met in the way you want them and just get lost in the wonder of worship and the beauty of God and the beauty of life. Where is your heart today with God and being a part of His church? Whether it's Quest as your church home or whether you have another church home, where is your heart today? Judas's fear of was always fearful of inadequacy not being right. Mary was free, unabashed, grateful, loving, response, generous in her service, joyful, internally free to worship with abandon. The worship team can come back now if you want. The worship worship is many things to us, isn't it? I mean, music helps us worship. Because we all use music throughout our whole life to help us express our feelings and our heart and our passion, right? Music is part of worship. Giving is part of worship. As we give part of ourselves that we made during the week back to God and say, you've given us it all. Working well to honor God. Not just to honor our boss, but working well is an act of worship. Whether it's for pay or whether it's volunteer, we do it for God. And that's an act of worship. Looking at the beauty of creation. And pondering how amazing God is, is is an act of worship. One of the most powerful acts of worship is sharing your story of faith. How God has written in your life His goodness in His presence with others. It's one of the best ways that we can worship God to say how grateful we are for what God's done in our lives. But I think one of the biggest ways that we begin to tip this consumer mindset and become free and full in abandonment to worship is when we don't feel like worshiping. When our needs aren't being met and we feel that distance with God, when we feel that maybe even anger towards God or anger towards others, that we turn, even in the midst of that, even when we don't feel like it, and we worship. You know, going through the day on an ordinary day, there's so many times that I'll feel a distance from God or I'll be frustrated with something. And I wish I would do this much quicker all the time and much more consistently, but on a regular basis, I'll just stop. And even if I'm in the middle of a public place, I'll just under my breath start to say, Lord, I I love you. Thank you for being here. I worship you. I bless your name. And when I think about last, and sometimes during that time, I think about the verse I shared last week where, where many are the plans of a man's mind, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I'll just declare my trust of God. And under my breath, I'll say, I trust you to be about the good things in my life today. I trust you to resolve the things that are unresolved. I trust you to meet my needs in the way you want to meet my needs. And under your breath, just worship. Today, the response is very simple. It's an invitation to worship. Especially today if you don't feel like doing it. And part of that invitation for me today is I, you don't have to become wild or anything like that, but if, you, if you're if you used to being in worship and, and you're not used to singing, then just stretch yourself a little today. Sing. I don't care if you sing bad. It's going to be loud enough. Nobody's going to hear you around you. You know, if you, if you're just used to sitting, then maybe stand. If you're used to standing, maybe kneel or maybe raise your hands. Just do something to stretch yourself in worship, especially if you don't feel like it. And then ask God to help you to make this a regular habit of every minute of every day. So, Lord, we just ask you to come now. We ask that your Spirit would rest upon us, that you would invite us into your presence, and that you would come to us now by your Spirit. Lord, for those that are here that are unconvinced, I pray that they would encounter your presence, the beauty and the warmth and the love of your presence. For all of us, I pray that you would come now as we worship more. And meet us in Jesus' name. Amen. So as several of us were praying before service, I felt like God gave me a picture of something He wanted to do today. And that picture was simply this, that some of you have at the bottom of your heart. This, uh, this crud. This stuff that you hold on to that says I'm not good enough. I can't come to God. He can't bless me the way He wants to bless me. In fact, some of you, I think, have probably not made a decision to make the formal line and declaration of following God because you're trying to figure out that moral piece, and you're approaching your faith primarily from a moral standpoint and from a making sense of rational, moral argument standpoint. And the reality is that faith in God, the kind that's compelling, is one of a relationship because of the unimaginable beauty of a God who pursues you right now, right where you're at, regardless of whether that stuff is cleaned out. And the picture i got is God wants you to learn to let go of, of, of that stuff. And when you fail to turn around and not think about all the accountability things first, although those are things are good, and not think about all the things you need to do and the lessons you need to learn and the logic and the wisdom that you need to do to be free, but instead to just turn and worship and receive His life His beauty, His presence, because even in that moment, He is pursuing you, and that's the only response we can give. That's the reason for some of you, you will never make that decision to pursue God and become faithful to Him until you have an encounter with Him as a person. Because it doesn't matter how many things you argue about in your faith, it doesn't matter how unclean you think you are, how much you've failed. And getting that stuff fixed. God wants us to be free of that stuff because of goodness that He brings to our life. But our life is about worship. And so I want to encourage you this week, just turn to God in all those moments when you've gone, I messed up again. I screwed up again. Or God seems different. And just turn and worship and let his presence come and just clean your heart out if you came here today and you've got a need that you'd love somebody to pray for if you're one of those people that you feel like god is reaching down in your heart and trying to clean stuff out and you want somebody to pray for you we'd love to do that we have a little prayer area back here uh, that some people will be at god bless let's be worshipers of god thank you for listening Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.